It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The job of mayor may not seem like the most glamorous political role. Unlike national politicians, mayors aren't in the limelight as much, and their work may not get as much recognition. But Michael Nutter, who served two terms as mayor of Philadelphia, says the job of mayor is the best in politics. It is the best job in politics because you can see day to day, and even with the complaints, that's one more opportunity tomorrow to try to make things better. In today's show, he explains how public servants who work on the local level can create big change. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is part of the Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. As a lifelong Philadelphian who loves his city, it seemed only natural when Michael Nutter ran for city council in the 1980s. He won a seat and served for 15 years before becoming mayor. In his two terms, the homicide rate dropped 30 percent, and more students than ever before graduated from high school. But it wasn't enough. Uh, my last year, you know, 270 homicides, too many. Um, 67 percent high school graduation rate, still too few. And, uh, you know, we just were never going to get comfortable with success. Nutter wrote the book, Mayor, the Best Job in Politics, in order to share his story. He wants young people to learn from his experience. In this conversation, Nutter speaks with Jonathan Capehart, an editorial writer for The Washington Post and host of the Cape Up podcast. They talk about the relationship between law enforcement and communities of color, the problems unique to city government, and a recent incident in Philadelphia where two African-American men were arrested at a Starbucks. Here's Capehart. So I just need to get this one question out of the, out of the way. Uh-oh. Um, you're the author of Mayor, the Best Job in Politics. Yes as some of you might already have. Um, why did you write this book? Because usually when a politician writes a book, that book is used as a trampoline yeah. to run for higher office. Senator Kamala Harris has one. Yeah. Senator Elizabeth Warren has one. Yeah. Uh, gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, has one. Yeah. Your good friend, um, Mayor Landrieu of New Orleans, has a book. Yeah. Their names are bandied about as possibly or currently running for president. You trying to tell us something? I'm trying to tell you that I'm not running for president. Um, <laughs> so you're to, uh, not running for president? I am not running for president. Okay. I'm pleased to make that announcement uh, <laughs> here today. I may be one of the few Americans not running uh, for president because I've already had the best job in politics. Um, I wrote this book, um, which I was not thinking about at all. Of all the things that I thought post-mayoral life, writing a book was not one of them. Uh, but um, you know, as they say, one thing led to another, conversations. Penn Press made it very easy uh, to, uh, to do. And I just really wanted to share some stories uh, mm -hmm. and some experiences uh, with newer, younger folks coming along. Some of the things that people read about or heard about and thought they might know everything about it. And there's always, as you all know, the story the and then the backstory right. and then what really happened. Um, and uh, it just seemed like a lot of fun. So then why is Mayor? the best job in politics. To me, it, it sounds like, you know, having covered say, the mayor of New York City, yeah. having worked with um, Mike Bloomberg on his first campaign for mayor, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of annoying. 
<laughs> no, I mean, you, you, like everyone's coming yeah. to you with, yeah. Yeah. you know, this isn't this isn't working. This isn't happening. You suck because of X, Y, or Z, right. and you have to respond. Absolutely. So, how on earth is all of that part of the best job in politics? Because you can actually get stuff done. You can make some things happen. Um, as the uh, earlier former great mayor of uh, New York said, you know, there is no Democrat or Republican way of sweeping the street. Right. When you have 20 inches of snow on the ground, <clears throat> you either plowed the snow or you didn't. You can't go and make a speech at 3 a.m. on C-SPAN uh, and, and have people think you're actually doing something. Um, we reduced crime. We improved educational opportunity. We made the city a better place to live. And so if that's your interest in going to public service, which was mine, it is the best job in politics because you can see day to day, and even with the complaints, that's one more opportunity tomorrow to try to make things better. So even being being governor is that much of a remove that governor yeah. wouldn't be the best job in yeah, politics? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, at least in Pennsylvania, I think that job really sucks. Um, <laughs> and you've got, you know, the House and the Senate, Democrats, Republicans, and the legislators, and I'm not down on legislators, I used to be one in city council, but I mean, their daily job is to just jerk you around. Uh, and it is far removed uh, from people. Um, folks in the audience will be surprised. I mean, I do actually go to the barber shop, and you know, I mean, that's where you have real conversations, you know, with folks. Um, you know, try to get through the supermarket with some ice cream. Um, you know, I was uh, my wife and I were in the supermarket once, and someone wanted to have an extended conversation. I mean, literally, it is dripping out of our shopping basket. She then refused to ever go to the supermarket with me again. Um, you know, so but. People have real needs of their government. You wake up in the morning, you turn on the faucet, you don't think about it, but you just had a relationship with the Philadelphia Water Department or whatever city you're in. Uh, you jump in your car, you expect the traffic signals uh, to work, the lights to work uh, at night. When you call 311, a professional police officer or firefighter will show up and actually do something uh, that is material uh, to your life. So it's a very personal kind of job and kind of engagement, and yes, uh, there are a lot of demands, uh, people have very high expectations, and you have to manage them. But I felt every day uh, was a challenge, we were being stretched, uh, but I learned a great deal uh, in the meantime. What, what it was a lot you, of fun. What did you learn? Uh, what I learned was that um, most of the time I had more capacity to do uh, certain things than I, than I thought. I learned about the incredible passion uh, that Philadelphians and, and citizens all across have about uh, their cities. Uh, I learned that um, every day we uh, could actually do a little more, sometimes with less. Uh, and we really learned how difficult it is to try to run a government with no money, uh, mm. which was, you know, like an added bonus uh, when, uh, you know, the Great Recession hit. And you still have to get stuff done. Um, when you were mayor and you woke up in the morning, walk me through um, how your day started. What at Aspen a couple of years ago at the Ideas Festival, Mayor Landrieu was on a panel and he talked about how like the first thing in the morning, one of the things he did first thing in the morning was look at this book that he got that was about police police shootings or mm -hmm. shoot kids. Citizens, right. Citizens who, mm -hmm. who were shot and killed yeah. in the city yeah. and just running down what happened, where did it happen, sure. and trying his hardest to make sure that that didn't happen again. Yeah. Um, 
did you have a similar routine? Yeah, well, so the first challenge of uh, just about every day was actually trying to get my daughter out of the house uh, to go to school. Um, and I felt that if I could get out at a decent time, get her pretty much situated, and I drove her to school every day, um, I, I figured everything was uh, pretty much downhill from there. Uh, that I could handle anything if I could just get out of the house uh, and, and, and uh, you know, navigate, uh, navigate some of those challenges. Um, Police Commissioner Ramsey, who, of course, had been Police Commissioner here, uh, and I, we were fortunate uh, to have him in Philadelphia. Um, he never wanted me to be surprised, um, and that was basically our, our motto, no surprises for the boss. Um, and he always felt compelled to call me at you know, sometimes five, six o'clock in the morning to tell me about some really bad thing that happened overnight. He, he somehow had envisioned that the press would be sitting at the bottom of my driveway every day and put a microphone in my face and never wanted me to be surprised. Uh, that actually never happened, uh, but I was informed uh, nonetheless. But we get the overnight uh, reports. That's usually the first thing uh, in the morning. I told the staff that, you know, the schedule is an estimate of what might happen today. Uh, but it ultimately often gets disrupted uh, by all kinds of other things. And then there's a series of meetings, six, eight, ten speeches in the course of a day, um, all of which uh, would have one or more of the four principles upon which I ran and that we built the government around. Mm -hmm. That we would be a safer city, a smarter city, a more sustainable city with jobs and economic opportunity, and that we would run the city with transparency and integrity. Every speech I gave had one or more of those themes inserted, infused uh, in uh, my remarks, no matter who I was talking to, because we really wanted to help the public understand this is why we're here. This is what we came to do, uh, recession notwithstanding, and we're committed to it. How, how, give yourself a, a hindsight grade. How, how would you grade yourself on those four, on those four things um, overall? Yeah, uh, probably B plus, A minus. Uh, which if I had more of those uh, when I was in college, um, I mean, who, kn who knows what I would have made of myself. B, <laughs> B plus, A minus. So what happened or, or what was it that makes you downgrade your own, your own grade? The, the two of those four, and all four are important, but you, know, you can't always do four things uh, well at the same time. But two are actually inextricably tied to each other. Um, public safety is the number one responsibility of any government, uh, local, state, federal, uh, making sure that your citizens are safe. And I think equally uh, educating uh, young people and adults who are trying to move themselves forward. And you know, if, we, if you do well in one, uh, you'll actually have some positive impact on the other. Uh, more better educated public, people working, uh, working folks generally don't have time to be involved in nonsense out in the streets and, and creating mayhem. Um, we had a 31% reduction in homicides during my time. Uh, there are people in Philadelphia alive because of the work of the Philadelphia Police Department and a whole host of partners. Um, more young people uh, than ever graduated from high school and have many gone on to college. Um, but the other side of that coin is uh, my last year, you know, 270 homicides, um, too many. 67% um, high school graduation rate, still too few. Uh, and so those were very, very, and still are, important uh, milestones uh, for me. And uh, you know, we just were never gonna get comfortable with success. So it was, it was good. Uh, 
um, I want it more. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Another book talk you should check out on our podcast is Runaway Slave. Author Erica Armstrong Dunbar chronicled the life of Ona Judge, a slave owned by America's first family, George and Martha Washington. At age 22, she escaped. Ona's life gave me that opportunity to think about things like how slavery was ending in the North, but becoming much more entrenched in the South. What did the laws look like regarding returning fugitive slaves? Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. You can also find a link in our show notes. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Jonathan Capehart. Hypothetically speaking, could you ever imagine giving yourself an A plus? I think elected. You guys um, didn't get the joke I just made. Yeah. <laughs> There's a certain certain person who, when asked, yeah. well, how would you grade yourself? Yeah. He said A yeah. plus. Yeah, I, you know, who had been in office like 15 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think any elected official, um, who's any serious person who's had the honor of, of public service. Uh, would rarely ever give themselves uh, an A plus if you're a serious person. I mean, you know, like God gets A plus. Right? <laughs> Everybody else is a little lower. Right. I mean, right. What are you talking about? Right. Or well, are you we're, just a jerk off? <laughs> well, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that person a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I want to come back yeah. to to Philadelphia and and um, Chief Ramsey and you served at your two terms of as mayor yeah. were. Those years were among the most volatile that we have seen in, in recent times in terms of the relationship between mm-hmm. law enforcement mm-hmm. and the community. Yep. Um, with all the police-involved shootings, yep. the, the rise of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. the demonstrations. Yeah. Occupy. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that. the, yeah, that's right, Occupy. That. Um, the disturbances. In all the cities where things happen, you know, there, very few happen in New York City, but every time something happened somewhere else, there were protests and mm-hmm. things. I don't recall hearing anything about yeah. Philadelphia. Right. How were you able to, for lack of a better description, keep a lid on the the very real right. and understandable and legitimate passions of the people in your city mm-hmm. who were probably feeling the same way? Yeah. Very much so. I mean, you know, the one, the one thing about Philadelphia, if you know, Philly folks, uh, Philly folks are not shy. Uh, they, they have a lot of traits and characteristics. Shyness is not one of them. Uh, they will let you know what's on their mind, whether you really want to hear it or not. Um, I attribute a lot of that to Police Commissioner Ramsey, and I think a lot of that has to do with his service actually here in Washington, D.C. Um, I mean, this is a place that gets a lot of protests by a lot of different groups, and he had a lot of experience in that regard. Um, our overall philosophy was, again, uh, with every respect to Washington, D.C., uh, you know, we actually were the first capital uh, of the United States of America. Um, you, know, you know, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Second Liberty Constitutional Bell. Convention, Liberty Bell, Rocky Steps, right? Um, so, I mean, we, I mean, you know, First Amendment, I mean, we believe 
in these things, not as theoretical concepts, but I mean, it's a part of our ethos. And so, for instance, um, during Occupy uh, time, Police Commissioner Ramsey instituted a policy where at every roll call every day, uh, the uh, First Amendment was read to the officers to remind them uh, that these folks who you are protecting, who will be hollering at you uh, all day long, have a right to be out here. That we specially selected the officers to be with the protesters wherever they wanted to go. And we tried to work with them. You want to, what do you want to, basically, what do you want to do today? You want to go over here, and sometimes they would tell us one place and then go another. We had officers in the front, officers on the side, officers in the back. If you want to protest in Philadelphia, you have a right to protest. We want you to be safe. Uh, and uh, we trained our officers and picked them specifically uh, to deal with those kinds of issues. And whether it's Occupy, Black Lives Matter, protests generated by other cities, whether it's Ferguson or you know, Eric Gardner or Michael Brown uh, in, in other places, and we had, had some of our own, so they're not perfect. I think we tried to convey a, a mindset that we hear you, we're listening, uh, we respect you, uh, and you have a right to be here. Uh, and basically for us, as long as you don't try to get on the expressway, you can march all day and all night. We did draw the line of that you cannot get on the expressway. We had some skirmishes uh, about that. But other than that, no, we, we did not see a lot of the, I mean, truly damaging, harmful mm -hmm. kinds of things uh, in Philadelphia. And um, I, I attribute that to uh, well-trained uh, police and community leaders being actively engaged. Well, I know this is not, um, you're no longer mayor, and the incident that I'm thinking of is, is Starbucks, yeah. where the, the mm -hmm. two black men were arrested, and right. just given everything you just said, it yeah. makes me, when I look at that incident, well, you're talking, the way you're talking about police, it's like, you know, they, they have judgment and discernment and, you know, they're very professional. Some and then you, yeah. discretion is the word mm -hmm. I'm looking for. Yeah. And then you have a situation like this with the yeah. Starbucks where, where's the discretion, where's the discernment, where's yeah. the judgment right. that um, seemed to be missing, at least from, from the video yeah. uh, that, every, that everyone has seen? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a painfully disturbing uh, circumstance and there were breakdowns I think in a variety of places uh, certainly starting with the store manager even calling the police in the first place um, the, you know some of the story has never really come out about that particular location uh, which is you know they've had numerous incidents of you know people who are how would I say people without homes um, you know staying there for extended periods of time sleeping disruptive etc They've had folks nearly overdose uh, in the bathroom, which is what led to you know a keyed or a keypaded uh, bathroom. That particular store had a policy: if you're not buying something, you know you can't use the bathroom, which is really where this whole incident starts. Mm -hmm. um, the dispatch after the person called the police, the dispatch was a group of men are causing a disturbance at the Starbucks. I don't want to be too technical, but I think two is a couple; it's not a group, right. and there was no disturbance. Right, but three officers show up, and if you really look hard, uh, you'll see they were actually bike patrol officers mm -hmm. who actually did not make the arrest. Uniform, the other uniform officers actually made the arrest because the bike officers realized that this is really not something that we should be engaged in. Then they called for a supervisor who really should have. I mean, sometimes you just have to step back. 
for a second. And like, what is, what is this about? Let me go talk to the man. You guys stay over there to kind of chill out, which they were. Um, what, you know, what's the deal? What is this about? Because the part of the training is about de-escalation. Right. That always seems to be this, the thing that, this that's thing could missing have gone in everything. So Every haywire. Incident. Right. But for the behavior, quite frankly, of the two guys, to some extent. If they had gotten feisty mm -hmm. and it starts to get into something else, I mean, before you know it, you either got tasers out, uh, batons, or if even you're worse. lucky. Right. Right? Um, they were very, you know, kind of peaceful and calm. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it was, oh, uh, there's a, a father, reverend here in the house. It was messed up uh, all the way around. <laughs> Thank you very much for your presence to clean up the language. <laughs> but I do think, you know, this idea that you know, de-escalation, de what happened to that? I, I mean, I, I always thought that police, that was their, that was part of their job. Sure. I mean, look, I, and I, I said on television, I mean, every time you go through a, a, a yellow light or a red light, every person doesn't get a ticket. Right, so I mean, now current police commissioner, who was uh, Commissioner Ramsey's first deputy, was a really great guy. You know, immediately came out of the box with you know the officers didn't do anything wrong and they were fine, blah blah blah, which he subsequently had to had to retract. Uh, and so again, that's where the that's where the discretion comes in, right? I mean, I've been stopped before. Yeah, you know, what are you doing? You're going too fast. You need to slow down. Driver's license, all that. Be on your way, right? So that did not have to go to that point and. I think they, they literally, I think they were just confused uh, about what to do and how to handle it uh, and a lack of uh, supervisory judgment uh, to kind of mm -hmm. chill it out, back off, and let's try to figure out an alternative. Actually, what you just said a, a moment ago raises another question that I'm, I wonder like how hard this is for a mayor, and that is the balance. Mm -hmm. in a, when a situation like this happens, yeah. which is, right. relatively speaking, benign, mm -hmm. versus something extremely uh, volatile sure. like Ferguson or right. Eric Garner, how do you balance right. supporting the police yeah. and supporting the community that's yeah. in pain? Yeah, well, part of it is, uh, I mean, one big lesson I learned in all of this is, especially with police-related matters, um, which I now think the commissioner you know, kind of regrets. In any of these big incidents, the first rule is the initial information about this incident will more than likely be wrong, more oftentimes than not. It is just, it's just too fast, too furious, it's wrong. So again, when you step in front of a microphone, you understand you're speaking with, with multiple audiences at the same time, and people hear what they hear. So, you know, do you want to fully blast the police? Probably not. Do you want to take up for the guys? Do you want to be respectful to the community? You've got a national business, or it could have been a local business, but you have a business community that's watching and waiting to hear what you're going to say, because tomorrow could be their day mm -hmm. in the spotlight, and you've got a general public, and then you've got you know, uh, the Washington Post, you've got What's CNN, you've got, you know, the rest of the world. I mean, this became a bit of an international incident. So when you get ready to say something, understand that all it's layers and layers and layers of conversation, and you are talking to multiple audiences, and you pretty much only get one chance. Because whatever you start with 
That's what you get judged by the rest of the time that that incident is going on. And what people are looking for is the difference between what did he or she say initially and what are they saying now? And where's the gap, right? So, I mean, it's one of these, you know, I have refrained over the last two plus years from saying, you know, if I were there, but... If you were there. <laughs> but if I were there. Um, you know, first, uh, there's no way in the world that Commissioner, and I'm not criticizing Commissioner Ross, everybody's in their moment. Uh, there's no way in the world that Commissioner Ramsey would have said those remarks on like the first day of the controversy. It would have been something went awry here, there'll be a full investigation, you know, we're gonna look into it, which the public is never happy about, and it sounds so milquetoast, but I mean, that really is the appropriate first day response, because you have no idea what really happened. They had not interviewed the officers, they hadn't had a full conversation, they had no conversation with the guys. So apologize and move on. And then you dig deeper into the details. And so, you know, I think generally trying to support good, hardworking, serious police officers is an appropriate policy. These folks do put on a uniform and they risk their lives for us every day. Um, most, every day, want to follow the rules, have no malice in their heart, and the fact of the matter is is that most police officers in their entire career will never take their gun out of their holster. And fewer actually shoot. That's a fact. So, you know, but things, do, things can go haywire quickly and then they spiral out of control and then you realize you've got a problem. So if it's Starbucks and you're some other business person and you know, if the mayor hammers you, you say, well, maybe if we have a bad incident at our store, you know, we're gonna get hammered. Uh, so you know, kind of where's the love, where's the support, how do we, you know, so you have to try to maintain these relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, in you're describing all the audiences that you have to talk to in one, in one moment and right. it's the very definition of you only have one time to make a first, first impression, impression, good sure. first impression. That sounds, it sounds very constricting mm -hmm. that you can't be as free, open, honest, spontaneous no. as you want to be. Sure. So how do you, you be? You also oftentimes can't, you definitely can't be as honest because often there's information that you can't share, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we've had, um, you know, children die uh, who were in the care and custody of our human services agency. It's actually a state law that prohibits, did, I got it changed, uh, that con severely constrained our ability to give any details about what had actually happened in this particular case. And so you've got a child death, horrific story, parents maybe around, not around, maybe they got arrested, whatever the case may be, but they were in the care and custody or under the supervision of our Department of Human Services, and we can virtually say nothing. You just get hammered mm -hmm. for a week with your hands tied behind your back. And at no point can you come out and say, because of law, we can't say anything, or does that make it worse by you saying say you can't and say it? And the press, of course, never believes it, and then they want to get into, you know, right to know requests, FOIAs, blah, 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 which, of course, you know, they go into the, the, the that black, box. black hole. The, right, 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 right. Then you just fight with the lawyers all day long. So, you know, look, this is, this is these jobs are really serious. Um, politics is a full contact sport, at least in Philadelphia. Uh, and this is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you have to know what you're doing. Uh, this is not like a game. It's, this is not the West Wing. 
um, where you know you come in, you have a problem, and then you know people have a big meeting, and everybody's nice, and then you go to commercial break, and then you come back, and you have this soaring music at the end, and peace, love, and happiness. Don't no, forget some days, your monologue. Yeah, right. I mean, some days are really messed up, and then it's still messed up the next day. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, NPR One, Spotify, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, and your favorite podcast app. Learn more about the Aspen Institute on our website, aspeninstitute.org. Now back to the show. Here's moderator Jonathan Capehart. How many of you have the book with you? Okay. Well, on page 93, if you want to <laughs> follow along, you, you write back, you are looking back on your, your mayoralty. Oh. Um, and you say, looking back on it, you've Ooh. talked all about this. I've come to refer to this as the week. Oh. It's a snapshot of just how many different things can happen in the course of one single week yeah. as mayor of a large American city. Yeah. This was, the, it was like the last week in October 2008 leading into yeah. November. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> so I'll give you the, the quick version, kind of follow along. Um, uh, in September, I had announced on September 11th, um, which of course always worst day to announce anything, but just was the day. Uh, I announced that the city was facing at least the important word is at least a $450 million five-year plan deficit. This is four months after we had just passed a balanced budget in our first year. Everybody's happy, new mayor, peace, love, and happiness. Four months later, we have a $450 million five-year plan deficit. Made that announcement in September. In the meantime, the Philadelphia Phillies were looking like they were heading toward the playoffs, but no expectation that it was going to amount to anything. In October, I announced that uh, the number had moved to between 650 to 850 and growing. Let me back up for one second. When we made that announcement on September 11, 2008, the recession had not yet been declared. People in Philly thought that we were the dumbest people who had ever come into government in modern history. But if you go back, you'll also realize that was a Thursday. That weekend, Lehman Brothers crashed and burned. The following week, every day, some major bank or organization, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Washington, every day the following week, some big business went down. And then the recession was declared. So just a context. People still thought that we were stupid, but they didn't think that we were by ourselves and thought maybe there was something bigger going on, but still, nonetheless, we were pretty dumb. Anyway, Phillies uh, get through the playoffs and are in the World Series. The week, Wednesday, October 29th, Philadelphia Phillies win the World Series. Friday, October 31st, Big parade in Philadelphia. Two million people show up. Virtually no one gets in trouble. Tuesday, first African-American becomes president-elect of the United States of America. 
Thursday, I announced that we have a $1 billion five-year plan deficit. People said, way to go, Mayor. <laughs> way to kill that buzz. From the Phillies to the presidency to a billion-dollar deficit. Um, yeah, we were not popular. Not a billion dollars. 1.4. $1.4 billion. It was a billion two months later. Yeah. That, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, we it, closed the 1.4. Mm-hmm. And then in January of 2009, I announced we had another $1 billion five-year plan deficit. And so then, yeah. well, one, how did, you, how did you close that gap? And yeah. two, how did you do it without having the entire city yeah. camped out on your, on your lawn yeah. with pitchforks and flaming torches? Well, a couple things. Um, so we had, uh, I mean, we very quickly developed a plan, but we also needed a mindset about what we would do, what we would not do. The first of which was, and this is not a criticism of any of the other cities because they're all unique, but for us, it was that we were not going to do massive layoffs for a couple reasons. Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate of the top 10 cities in the United States of America. We have a very poor population that needs a lot of service. Two, massive layoffs would only contribute to further dysfunction in the government. Three, without the people that we need to run the place, the core services, whenever the recovery would happen, which of course we didn't know when that was going to be, we would not be able to very quickly uh, ramp up and participate in the recovery. So we made a decision, no mass layoffs. We stopped hiring, we didn't fill any more positions, we cut services and raised taxes. If anyone here is thinking about running for office, do not cut people's services and raise their taxes at the same time. It is really not a good strategy. Basically, I'm gonna charge you more and give you less. One other piece of advice. I announced initially that we were having salary cuts for all the top level people in the government, starting with myself, with a 10% salary cut. Uh, if you're going to do that, uh, you should inform your spouse before, uh, before you announce that, uh, and she found out on the radio. So uh, a little bit of conversation that night at home. But um, uh, we, um, so what we called it was this was a shared sacrifice, that everyone had to put something on the table, that every public employee, non-union, who had a salary of more than $50,000 had to take a pay cut, as well as uh, furlough days, which are basically work, but you don't get paid. Um, our union employees, all of them had uh, contracts, um, had one-year contracts that we had negotiated, which now makes us seem like we were brilliant. Um, that was not the purpose of it. We negotiated one-year contracts with them just to have more time. Um, when you come in off, historically, when you start in January, all four major union contracts usually expire on June 30 of that same year. So you have virtually no time to really get ready for negotiations, which is why most of the mayors basically kind of got run over. We went a different route and said we want one-year contracts because we're going to buy a certain amount of time to be able to really figure out what do we want in upcoming negotiations. Had we signed multi-year contracts in my first year, we would have had to massively lay people off because we literally would not have had the money to pay folks. And so that really kind of worked out for us. Our two um, AFSCME unions actually did not have contracts for six years, but none of their people got laid off, and they never went on strike. 
Um, we announced at one point in time that we stopped paying all of our vendors. All of them. Not one vendor stopped providing service to us. Not one. And then we started a weekly series of meetings where we would decide, almost kind of like you do at the kitchen table, we're paying this one, we're not paying that one, we're paying this one, this one gets half, or, you know, it's like, the, like, am I paying the cable or the electric, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were ultimately rewarded for our fiscal stewardship as one of the only cities in the country that had its bond rating increased or upgraded as the recession was starting to end. Philadelphia today has an A rating from all three rating agencies, the first time since the 70s. We restarted our tax reduction program, uh, which is now at its lowest levels uh, since, uh, since the 70s. Um, more people working, more economic development. So that first term um, was all recession all the time. We spent two, two and a half years cutting services and, 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 and raising people's taxes. Listening to you talk about that your first term, it, t it, it took me back to Mayor Bloomberg's first term because he took he um, right became mayor right after 9/11 and had to raise taxes. Um, the shared sacrifice mm -hmm. was was the mantra and the message. Mm -hmm. uh, he probably delivered that that message with a little less sugar coating than you probably <laughs> did. Yeah, but yeah it makes slightly me different styles. Well, how much how much of you, how you handled the emergency that you had was informed by what Bloomberg did? Uh, seven years earlier. Yeah. Well, we looked at a lot of you know crises, uh, situations. The, the the fact of the matter is, is that, and this is again one of the beauties about mayors, mayors really do look to each other uh, for uh, insight, information, uh, and strategy. Um, when I won the Democratic primary, so um, Philly and Chicago are on the same election cycle, but Chicago's election is earlier, um, but. Um, so our primary is in May and then, of course, a general in November. Um, Philly's a very heavily Democratic city, so when I won the Democratic primary, um, in our town, if you win the Democratic primary, unless you are indicted and convicted... Um, <laughs> it's um, an and, not oh, it's an or. It's not or, right. no, you need both. Um, and even then it might be. Um, but if you win the Democratic primary, you should go on to uh, win the general election. That summer, uh, between the two elections, I went to see Mayor Bloomberg and Mayor Daley in Chicago uh, to learn from them about running cities. Because at the time, uh, there was no mayor school. Um, of course, mm -hmm. that's now not the case because Mayor Bloomberg gave uh, Harvard Kennedy, Harvard Business, $32 million to create the Bloomberg-Harvard uh, City Leadership Initiative, uh, which I do some advisory work for. Um, and I spent a good amount of time with them, and so I read their speeches at budget time, looked at their websites, and a number of other cities uh, across the country. And so, uh, and Philadelphia had gone through its own financial crisis in the 90s that had nothing to do with the worldwide thing. That was just our own thing. And I was in city council at the time uh, and watched uh, what then Mayor Rendell did. So we used a lot of strategies and tactics from uh, any number of, of uh, crisis circumstances. And the other thing that doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it should is crisis communications. Um, it, even when you have bad news, and we had a lot of it, you have to talk to people. 
and try to help educate and inform the public as to why you're doing what you're doing. We're doing A to get us to B to ultimately achieve this particular goal. And you have to be consistent with that, and you can't get distracted by all the noise and the, and the rhetoric and the nonsense. Um, I mean, it was, like I said, it was really hard. I mean, everyone hated us. Um, it takes a lot of effort to piss everybody off. I mean, it really does, right? And, uh, but that's shared sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and ultimately, I think, I mean, people saw the, saw the, uh, saw the benefits of it, but going through it uh, was not easy. Mm -hmm. All right, this is going to be answers. a, yeah, and, well, no, you give, give short answers. No, you give short answers. Okay. Um, so I want to do this as rapid firely yeah. as, yeah. as we Lightning can. Round. And these are, these are weighty subjects, so I don't know how this is going to yeah. work. But since we mentioned him before um, obliquely, and now yeah. I will just name him President Trump. Yeah. 45. 45. 45. Um, so, thoughts? Um, <laughs> I know that's, I mean, yeah, I know that's no, broad, I mean, but... It's just, I mean, uh, what is the... There are, a lot of, there are a lot of things that could be disturbing, but as a public policy person, recovering elected official, I, I think the most disturbing, beyond any of the legal issues and investigations and the like, is the obvious, complete disdain and disregarding of any notion of what public service is about, what it means to be a public servant, that there actually are some rules and standards. And I understand, you know, you're going to turn things upside down and drain the swamp, which apparently now is a moat around the White House. But, okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, there, there, there are just some norms uh, that go with public service. And um, I think among him, and then, I mean, I've never seen an administration, certainly so early, that has, I don't know, eight or nine cabinet secretaries under various investigations themselves, 25 some odd people have left uh, within a year, 13 months, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, and I mean, it just, it seems kind of rudderless and I mean, there's, there's no major theme other than him. And the chaos and confusion that swirls around that. I, I just I don't think chaos is is a is a strategy. I, I don't. I, that's. I mean, <laughs> I can't even imagine what it must be like to work there. I mean, your life now revolves around it was 140, and you know, thank you, Twitter. Uh, <laughs> now 280 characters every day about all manner of like really serious things. Very few addresses to the American public about things that are, I mean, like serious stuff that's going on. I mean, every now and then you've got to take to the East Room or somewhere or the, or the press place. I mean, you know these places better than me. And actually talk to, mm -hmm. talk to the American public. Now, there is chaos and confusion coming out of, out of the White House, specifically out of the West Wing. But there seems to be a concerted effort in the agencies, mm. um, that is that that is not chaotic, is, right. but it's just very deliberate yeah. about dismantling yes. not just the Obama whatever President Obama put in right. in the previous term. Although that is a major theme. Well, sure, that's a major theme, but dismantling everything that um, conservatives and far right conservatives didn't like. Right. Right. They, which, I mean, which, which often get very little attention, right? Because of all the 
chaos and confusion. Right? So, so, for instance, sure. Um, you know, just the other day, I mean, one of the dumber ideas: uh, we're going to triple the rents of uh, public housing tenants. The minimum, minimum rent. Um, yeah, are they, did they suddenly get all get rich and they're making too much money? I mean, like, are you serious? Um, you've got an education secretary who hates education. You've got an EPA guy who hates that department. Rick Perry couldn't remember that he wanted to get rid of the energy department and is now in charge of it. Uh, so, you know, regulations, air, water quality, a variety of things going on. And I would suggest so much information and so much activity trying to go through, you know, a couple pipelines that the American public actually can't really keep track mm -hmm. of what's going on. These, these things would be major stories in and of themselves, on their own. But they are overwhelmed by all the other stuff. Yet life goes on. Um, they have no particular strategy or engagement. I'm just leaving. Uh, I was been down here for a day or so with the African American Mayors Association. And earlier this year, of course, with the US Conference of Mayors. There's no strategy. There's no level of engagement with cities other than a negative one which is either you know, beating up on Chicago about crime or suing cities about whether they're cooperating with ICE and this whole sanctuary city immigration stuff, travel ban. I mean, that's the city engagement is we hate you. <laughs> huh? Right, so I mean, look, I got spoiled. I had seven of my eight years with the Obama administration and I've teased the president and, and others that during President those years, Obama. President Obama, I've uh, not, yeah, I had no <laughs> I think you'd want with, folks to know yeah, that. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry, President Obama. Um, I mean, I felt like at times like I worked for them. Like, <laughs> yo, I got a city to run. I mean, you know, this conference call, that conference call, this meeting, that meeting. Yeah, but, I mean, but serious engagement mm -hmm. about things that were going on, and that has come to a grinding halt. Is the Democratic Party uh, ready to, uh, well, I'm not going to say take back the House because that leads down to a, a whole other route. Yeah. But is the Democratic Party ready to retake the White House in 2020? Today? Um, you know, look, the one issue for Democrats, and I'm a at-large member of the DNC, I mean, you know, I don't think we'll have any trouble fielding candidates. Uh, there will be no lack of candidates on, on our side. I'm hoping there won't be 17 like there were. Uh, on the Republican side last time. Um, I think our challenge still remains, what's the message? And who is or who are the messengers? Hoping that the other team drops the ball is not a strategy. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you'll get a couple interceptions, you get a couple fumbles, I mean, that's, that's nice, but you should actually have your own. And, you know, I am not, uh, I'm not fully clear uh, on what our message is to our base, to people who didn't vote, uh, to independents, to moderate Republicans and others who might just be thinking maybe this Trump thing is not exactly kind of working out uh, the way we thought it might. But you just can't hope that people migrate to you um, on, on happenstance. Mm -hmm. As a candidate and as an elected, I, I always believe you have to give people something to be for. I want you to be for this, not just against the other person. Now, I mean, if you're a candidate, you take your votes how you can get them. I don't have the time to discern between you really voted for me or you just hated the other person. You know, I get one more vote, I win. 
Um, but I think leading up to midterms and 2020, clear message, clear communications, everybody on the same page, uh, and you know, uh, go out on a little bit of a limb. You know, and some of our uh, more prominent and senior folks um, need to get out of the way. Like who? <laughs> some of our more senior, prominent folks need to get out of the way and create some space. That you know, the platform is only so big. Uh huh. Right. Um, and you know, and I think we have some talent that really does want to be lifted up, but wants to be respectful. This sounds like you're not talking about presidential politics and more about, say, oh, I don't know, congressional politics. I think it's I think it's up and down the I think it's up and down the ballot. I mean, again, I just came from the conference. I mean, you got a whole new crop of, you know, brand new younger mayors, uh, men and women, uh, who who are now in office. Uh, it's a bunch of folks who want to run, certainly for Congress. There'll be some presidential candidates who are, you know, younger or different. You made reference to you know a couple at the opening. You know, why aren't people like you know Mitch Landrieu or Eric Garcetti mayors who actually did something? Uh, you know, uh, Mayor Mitch is about to come out of office uh, next month. Um, you know, I mean, they should be considered just as viable as any governor or congressman or, or anyone else. It's never happened before because uh, we operate generally at such a such a lower level. But I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, again, I can't normalize what what's going on. But I mean, if the least qualified person ever to run for president of the United States of America is now actually sitting in the White House, then. It seems to me like all bets are off. <laughs> and with that, you might want to reconsider not running. When people write books, they have to figure out their cover and what's going to go yeah. on the cover and why <laughs> whatever is on the yeah. cover is on the cover. Why this picture? What's the story behind this picture? Sure. So it's, it's one of my all-time favorite pictures. Um, when my first visit to the Obama White House, um, I noticed, and people know President Obama's very famous photographer, Pete Souza. Um, but I noticed they had all these um, pictures on the wall. And it was out of that experience that I said, you know, we should probably take more photos and share them throughout the government. So I brought on two young people. One was a Temple University student, and one was an Art Institute student. Um, they were still in school, and so we brought them on as photography interns. And they were allowed to basically go everywhere I went front of the scene, behind the scenes, they got shots that none of the photographers back home would ever get. Um, and so we had, I mean, hundreds of thousands of, of, of photos. And so one day I see this photo, and we used to have ours in the hallway right outside the mayor's office and around the corner. We sent them out to departments and agencies, but this one was always one of my favorites. And so when it came time for the book, and you know, what are you gonna put on the cover? But I had some other thoughts. Um, and so we said, okay, well, but this one really is 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 pretty powerful. It's a, you know, obviously an older, uh, <laughs> um, older black man uh, talking to an obviously younger uh, uh, black boy, and it's very meaningful and powerful to me. It's really almost kind of about you know passing the torch, passing you know some some knowledge or, or something like that. There was only one problem. We didn't know who the kid was. <laughs> so. 
you know, on the one hand, the picture had been out in the public sphere. This is the picture. We, so I called my two photographers uh, when we were working on the book. You guys remember, one of you took this photo. Who took the photo? Look back to yourself. So Kate said, I took that photo. I said, well, who's the kid? Where is it from? When did we take this photo? She goes back through her records. She finds when it was, where it was, what event I was at. I have no information on the kid. Like, wow, I really like this photo. No one said anything. It's been out in the public sphere for six, seven years. Let's take a chance. Photo. The picture is from uh, Philadelphia Barristers, uh, which is a black lawyers uh, organization in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Barristers Martin Luther King Day Breakfast. I was talking to some people. Guy comes up. There's a kid. I always spent a lot of time. I love just kind of talking to kids and just engaging with them. And, and we're having our little conversation. Life goes on. About two weeks after the book comes out, I happen to be talking to my first chief of staff, uh, who's now president of uh, John Smith uh, College uh, in North Carolina. And he said, oh, by the way, you know, that cover on your, you know that cover on your book? Do you know who that is? I said, no. He said, that's my neighbor. <laughs> he lives two doors down. I said, oh, who is it? Then he tells me, and as it turns out, I know his parents. Um, well, that young man was uh, eight and a half. Uh, he's now 15, and the reason he was at the barrister's breakfast is because he had gotten in trouble at home the week before, and his punishment was <laughs> he had to go to the barrister's breakfast <laughs> with his father, who was a lawyer, and hence the photo. Wow. And with that, and is doing very well in school now, and apparently doesn't get in trouble anymore. So, <laughs> well, great. Name is Blaine, but uh, that's the story. Michael Nutter, 98th Mayor of Philadelphia, author of Mayor: The Best Job in Politics. Thanks very much. Michael Nutter teaches urban and public affairs at Columbia. He served two terms as mayor of Philadelphia. His latest book is Mayor: The Best Job in Politics. He was interviewed by Jonathan Capehart, a columnist for The Washington Post and commentator for MSNBC. Their conversation was part of the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series held in Washington, D.C. in April. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go so you never miss an episode. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.